Tonight, on behalf of the Conferences Department, I'd like to ask you and tell you about um, our collection for the High Sea Earthquake Appeal. Um, the people in the red T-shirts all work here, and we're going to be collecting with a green bucket on either door on your way out. So if you'd like to make a donation, please feel free. Thank you very much. So, ladies and gentlemen, my name's Tim Besley. I'm going to be chairing tonight's uh, panel on what we sh should be teaching our students. I'm a member of the economics department here at the LSE, but uh, uh, you will see me only in my moderating role this evening. Um, we, we stand here at the LSE, in, in a sense, in the shadow of our own history, because LSE has been a place that, for a very long period, has played a central role in the development and teaching of economics. And uh, we as a department remain interested in having open debates about those questions. After all, many of the, uh, our students go on to leading positions, and those of us who have the privilege of teaching here at the LSE are only too aware of the quality of the student body that, we remain, uh, that, that remains here today. So having discussions about uh, what we should teach our students, uh, whether the material and the presentation of it is uh, on message for uh, current events in the economy is extremely important. <clears throat> we also stand, of course, in the shadow of the recent financial crisis, uh, which has led many people to question whether, indeed, uh, the kinds of economics that are common currency uh, are the right kind uh, to meet the challenges that we, we currently face. And I think we couldn't expect a better panel than we have this evening to engage with these issues. Uh, and the way we're going to run it is each member of the panel, and I'll introduce them in a moment, is going to speak for uh, 12 minutes uh, to, make their, to, to make their views on these general issues clear. But we hope to use a, a significant chunk of time uh, to have a debate and discussion among you, uh, with you, with the audience. Uh, and uh, so once the uh, panel have made their presentations, I will open it up to the floor and I'll look forward to, to hearing uh, what you all have to say and you can obviously pose questions to the panel. Now let me introduce the panel. They're going to go in alphabetical order. Uh, the first member of the panel will be Jeff Hodgson uh, from the University of Hertfordshire, who uh, among his uh, many claims to fame is the editor of the Journal of Institutional Economics. Um, the second speaker will be Albert Marset, uh, my colleague here in the economics department, uh, professor of economics here. Third speaker, Paul Omrod from Volterra Economics. And then finally, I'll turn to John Sutton, who's the John Hicks Professor of Economics here at the LSE. Um, and uh, I won't, don't want to delay matters any further. Uh, I, I'd like to call on our first speaker, Jeff Hodgson, uh, to uh, give us his take on what kind of economics should we teach. Jeff. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Tim and his team very warmly for organising this event. I think it's very important that we have the opportunity to discuss the issues that we're going to raise this evening, and I particularly welcome it being in the LSE, so thanks very much, Tim. I've only got 12 minutes, so I'm going to have to rush through. You've already had a few minutes to see what's the structure of my talk. That's what I'm not going to argue for. We're not arguing for the removal of mathematics. Some people do, but these two people, Paul and I, are not going to argue for that. Instead, we're going to make the claim that a major problem is the dominance of technique over substance in economics. And I'll give you arguments for that. And also, uh, 
in regard to the recent crisis, a focus on mathematical elegance has diverted economists, not all of them, but a lot of them, from the study of real-world phenomena. And finally, getting back to the teaching issue, students are not trained adequately to deal, discriminate properly between uh, uh, particular models and assumptions. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Now, don't take my word for this. I'm going to give you lots of quotes. And these are people who are much more important than I am in the profession. Take their words seriously, please. 28, 22 years ago, the American Economic Association set up a commission to investigate the state of graduate economics teaching in the USA. That is what they said. Oops, I want to get back to this. See that work. Uh, graduate programs may be turning into a generation with too many idiot savants, their words, not mine, skilled in technique but innocent of real economic issues. I haven't got the time to give you the later evaluations of the effect of that report, but generally it's accepted that it had no effect in changing the discipline. So that was said 22 years ago. Uh, Blinder, who was a member of this commission, said here, quotes, students and faculty obsessed with technique over substance, exams tested mathematical puzzle-solving ability, not substantive knowledge about economics. These are not my words, these are Blinder's words. Um, <clears throat> studies around that time found that only 3% the graduate students, this is in the USA, so I'm not necessarily saying it's everywhere in the, in the UK or everyone else, but USA is pretty important for the profession. Only 3% saw having a thorough knowledge of the economy as important, only 3%. But by contrast, 57% believed that expertise in mathematics was important. Similar polls have been taken more recently, and similar results endure. Uh, Blauk, you may take him as atypical, but he was a professor at the University of London. Um, he puts it rather uh, caustically. Uh, modern economics is sick, etc. Economists have converted the subject into a sort of social mathematics in which analytical rigor is everything and practical relevance is nothing. Um, you may want to ignore Mark Blau, but it's more difficult to ignore Nobel laureates. Here's one, Coase. Uh, existing economics is a theoretical system which floats in the air and which bears little relation to what happens in the real world. Nobel laureate. One, two Nobel laureates. Milton Friedman, of all people, may take a different position on the question of um, free markets and the cause of the slump, but he still had a problem with what was going on in economics. Economics has become increasingly an arcane branch of mathematics rather than dealing with real economic problems. Not one, but three. Krugman, more recently... This is more famous, we've been about publicity. <coughs> Predictive failure was the least of the field's problems in regard to the recession. I, I, I sympathise with that statement. More importantly was the profession's blindness to the very possibility of catastrophic famous market economy. Which raises another issue, and that's the predominance of laissez-faire ideology in certain quarters of the profession, not in the profession as a whole. But the more important thing for the, regard to the point I'm making now is this last point. The economics profession went astray because economics mistook beauty clad in impressive looking mathematics for truth. And if you know any of Krugman's work, you know he's not averse to mathematics. He uses it extensively himself. Um, well, having um, presented with the evidence, I can give you a lot more evidence. Um, more Nobel laureates, Leontief, North, and several others. I suggest we do have a problem. Uh, don't take my word for it. Take the word of these leading people in the profession. Okay, what's it all about then? Well, the, I anticipate the claim that 
these models are tested. The, the, the way economists proceed is to test models in some way, uh, either using econometrics or some other m method of testing. And we test mo models perhaps by Milton Friedman's criterion, <coughs> correct predictions or whatever. Now, that may be true to some extent, but there's a problem in that argument. If you actually look at what goes into the journals, testing is not often the most prominent issue. It's sometimes there, but it's not often. Leontief, for example, found that 50% of articles in a certain period in the American Review had, no, had models but no data, so they didn't try to test at all. Um, an article by, quite an old article by Canterbury and Burkhardt, only three out of 542 empirical articles they surveyed <coughs> tried to falsify the hypotheses in the Popperian sense. More recently, this is a one-year one slab of the Journal Economic Theory, um, 66 articles were examined, only, uh, 27 failed to define the real world, world object of analysis. They didn't say what they were talking about, they said, we just we have a model. Okay? They didn't say what's the relevance of the model and where it was situated in regard to real world phenomena. So that's, <coughs> that's more than a third failed in that sense. If you <coughs> add the additional criteria, not only must you have a model that talks about the world, but you must actually evaluate in some sense. Only eight <coughs> of the 66 articles, according to this survey, uh, passed that test. Um, actually, knockout econometric tests, while sometimes do happen, are relatively rare, for good reasons rehearsed in the profession. Particularly in um, the methodology of economics, people actually examine how it's possible, would it be possible to falsify things? But Boland, for example, in a book in 1989, looked at this. It's much more difficult to falsify than we might imagine. So econometrics <coughs> may be useful, it certainly is in some contracts, but often we don't get knockout uh, predictions. <coughs> so therefore, econometrics cannot do all the work. We need wisdom as well as uh, techniques. Furthermore, if prediction is our goal, I think we're being misled because we know about nonlinearities and complexity, and in, that, in, those con in, in those circumstances, prediction is often thwarted. I'm not saying prediction is unimportant, but it's often very, very difficult to make predictions. And finally, in, in a more in philosophical vein, I think uh, the role of the science, including economics, is not primarily to make predictions, but actually to explain causally what's going on, to understand the causal mechanisms. If that's the case, then, we have a much richer agenda to teach students on how they actually get to understand the causal mechanisms involved. And it's not simply a question of testing, although that may be important. So additional skills are required to adjudicate between theories. Students need training in the philosophy of science. You need some background to understand the basis on which truth claims are established, particularly in the social sciences where it's often very complex to make such claims. And also, <clears throat> one thing that's underemphasized is conceptual precision. Arguments for mathematics, which are all well and good, and we're not against mathematics, uh, one of the good arguments for mathematics is that it forces you to be precise and to define your terms. That's a good reason why mathematics is important. But we're enormously sloppy about conceptual precision. There's no agreement amongst economists about what a firm is. There's no, no consensus definition about a firm. <laughs> Uh, the market has been defined, but nobody really cares how it's defined. I mean, the, not, the present edition of the power grade has an issue, a, 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 
an entry on markets, but preceding editions didn't have entries on markets. Central concept, we don't even bother to discuss it, we place it centrally and, and understand its meaning. So conceptual precision is, is just as important as mathematical precision. How do we train people to be conceptually precise? It's very, very difficult. It's just as hard as mathematics. You have to teach them some background, some philosophy, some understanding, how words are used, how concepts can be ambiguous. It's much richer uh, as an agenda for teaching than mathematics alone. And, and furthermore, we have to learn from the history of economics. This point has been well made, well made by many people, so I won't develop it. But in terms of understanding the, uh, the developments up to the recession, up to the crash, and afterwards, people have made this very strong and, I think, valid claim that we have to learn from history as well as from models. There's a face you recognize. The reason I put that face there is because I want to give him a long quote, and I couldn't put them both on the same slide, and that's a truncated version of what Keynes said. Basically, what he's saying is the economist has to have a very, very broad training in history, in social sciences, in the philosophy, uh, political <coughs> science, that's necessary to be a good economist. You can find similar quotes from Hayek and several other people about that importance of that breadth of wisdom as well as depth. Now, I'm now briefly, in the time available, to talk about a little bit of micro. Um, very, very quickly, uh, most of micro for much of the 20th century is around the, on the, on the bottom here. One, two, or many agents where you assume there was no strategic interaction between agents. So you were down here. One of the great moves in re more recent e economics in the last 40 years of rational expectations modeling, we talk about strategic interaction between agents. But you have many agents and you have an equilibrium situation. Gain theory has broadened it even further. Behavioral gain theory brings us down here. Uh, but there's still a huge hole in the middle. So in terms of micro, which is where my interests and background lie more than macro, uh, more, more than macro uh, there's a huge uh, gap in the middle. I would describe that gap as follows. It's a kind of institutional evolutionary realm where Edward's theorizing is extremely messy. There's things like agent-based modeling necessary. General theories are difficult to do. Um, now, Again, don't take my word for it. I think there's a very good quotation from Frank Hahn uh, quite a long time ago, 29 years ago. Um, he put it in the form of a prediction. The prediction actually turns out to be false because he was quite optimistic in his terms, in my terms, about the change happening. The change hasn't happened. But what the quote does is talk about the, the kind of messy theorizing that's necessary in the messy world and the way we should get away from these uh, rather simple gen general models which are often taught uh, to undergraduates, not necessarily here, but in other places. It's the look at the textbooks and you'll see what I mean, rather than what's necessarily taught here, which I'm sure is better. So, to conclude, models are important, but we must where are the limitations? So, learning the limitations of models should be on, on our teaching agenda. That means, in addition to learning about <coughs> models, we need philosophy, history of thought, and economic history. And students should be trained to question assumptions and adjudicate wisely between competing explanations. And here's some names. Now, I'm, it's an open question. How many PhD students, you don't need to answer personally, by the way, how many PhD students read any of these? I would say these are among the top ten. These are my top ten. Amongst those ten names of leading economists, how many PhD students read, read any of it? Now, I think sure that a good number read one or two, perhaps, words or passages or one or two of these economists. But I'm asking my colleagues on the panel, how many do you think? 
Is it one out of ten, two out of ten? In a lot of cases, I'm afraid, not necessarily here, but in other places, it'll be zero out of ten. I think that really sums up the state of the profession. When we talk about Adam Smith and we talk about Keynes, but we don't actually read him. That's my final reason for being wary. Joan Robinson. The purpose of studying economics is not to acquire a set of ready-made answers to <laughs> questions, but to learn how to avoid being deceived by economists. We've been deceived by economists. Let's be more critical and teach our students uh, to be so. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Jeff. Our second speaker is Albert Marcel. So, Albert, you're going to speak from here? Oh, you're going over there, right? Yes. When you come, there's a... You're right there? Yeah. So... Okay, so... <clears throat> I wasn't clear if the... what kind of economics we should teach is... what kind of economics we should teach to our PhD students or to our undergrad students. Uh, or to our MSc students somewhere in between. So most of my talk will be about what we should talk, what we should, I thought was about what we should teach to undergraduate students, kind of what we sell, just kind of what we sell to the outside world and what might possibly have had an effect on the crisis. Uh, uh, so that's what I will talk about most. Now, so what is it that we do that people in this you know, in universities, economists do. Well, we try to think of economics as a science. We think it, if it's not close to it, it should get closer and closer. And uh, as a science, then it's got to be uh, about the discipline where theory interacts with the data in a constant way. So we should be looking at data constantly. The, the more data, the better. Uh, but, you know, if you don't have a theory in mind, the data is a mess. It's just, uh, you cannot say anything. And, um, and therefore, we need models, we need theories, just to see what, wh where to look. And so we build theories, and maybe these are then contrasted <coughs> with the data and falsified. And then this helps us build new theories. Perhaps it suggests other data that we can look at. And uh, I think we should teach in undergraduate programs and even in uh, MSc programs theories that, uh, are, that the research community has thoroughly and very, you know, very strongly uh, tested both in empirical terms and in, uh, in the internal consistency of the theory. Because that's our job, you know. Somebody has to do that, we think, and we do it, and it's also fun. So uh, that's what we do, and we think that by doing that, we may get a, a better understanding of uh, how to intervene in the economy. Now, necessarily, uh, economic models are oversimplified. Uh, models in physics are also simplified, okay? It's just not true that... Uh, that uh, that gravity makes the body fall at 9.8 meters per second. It's just not true. It depends on the altitude, the density of the air. It depends on lots of things. But still in physics, you learn that uh, bodies fall at 9.8 meters per second. And uh, because models are 
oversimplified, uh, they will necessarily fail. That's not bad. That's what we should be doing. But we should also be aware that it takes a model to beat a model. It's the easiest thing in the world to make fun of uh, a model in economics. Anyone in the street can recognize that uh, consumers uh, don't have rational expectations and don't have uh, log utility. And furthermore, anyone can recognize that consumers don't maximize utility. But we think that by making these assumptions, perhaps we capture some of what agents do. And if these are very bad assumptions, the data will tell us. And then we'll find other ways of modeling things. But unless we find a better way, there's no, it's not fair to make fun of a, of a economic model unless you have a better one. So uh, uh, something that already Gerlach emphasized, um, what we should really teach is what are the assumptions behind the result. We should, we didn't coordinate on this. Uh, the one, one by, by reading now, surfing the web, <coughs> one really gets the impression that uh, a lot of economics has been taught in a super oversimplified way. And that very quickly some uh, some recipes have been given to a few people who have not used them with care. Um, and just as an example, which is relevant perhaps for the crisis, is that there has been this, uh, whoops, uh, I see. There has been this, I guess these were not very important. Uh, there has been this uh, idea around uh, the profession and uh, the financial industry that we have been able to master risk. That because we had such sophisticated derivative markets, uh, um, of all kinds, uh, the financial system could absorb the risk just because we had so many derivative markets. I could give you a lot of anecdotes. I could give you, for example, I have a few papers on incomplete markets where, where the financial sector cannot absorb the risk. And one of my co-authors, her husband works in the investment banking industry. And when she told what she was working on to economists from this investment bank, they would tell her, but why do you work on incomplete markets? It's, we have complete markets, you know. It's, uh, okay, so you'll publish it mathematically complicated, whatever, but it's not uh, really relevant. Another, as another anecdote, um, you know, there's a super famous uh, piece of research that has been uh, used uh, more than any other one probably by the industry is the Black-Scholes formula, giving uh, the price of an option as a function of the price of uh, bonds and stocks, stock returns. <coughs> now that formula is derived under the assumption of complete markets. In one way or another, you need complete markets. You need that the financial system is able to absorb any risk you throw at it. Now, people in the financial industry know this formula. And uh, they take it as a thing that's just necessarily true too often. As an example, there was a group of people from a famous investment bank in the US that was going around giving a talk. These were 
obviously very smart people uh, had taken a master somewhere probably and um, and they had been hired by one of the best financial industries these are very selective it's very not so easy to get these jobs they were giving a talk ab around uh, I guess uh, late 2008 talking about how there had been a 30 standard deviation event now uh, people who know a little bit of statistics, you know that this can, is totally impossible. No? And what they should be doing, what they should have been saying, is that the Black and Scholes formula didn't work. You know, <laughs> that some of the assumptions that went in it uh, were wrong, and uh, that things like default risk, uh, transaction costs. Uh, unanticipated events, uh, <coughs> expectational changes, who knows? Things like that just broke down and, and then it's not that something really bizarre, really, really, really bizarre happened. It's just that the thermometer by which we were measuring these, the temperature just broke down and it said that we were minus 50. But if my thermometer breaks down and it shows minus 50, which it does, I don't go around saying it was minus 50, I'm saying, thermometer broke down. And perhaps this attitude uh, played a role, and, and I think it's because, well, everybody has a tendency to want to sell what they do, and teaching the assumptions is much harder. It's much harder to stand in front of the students and tell them, well, I'm going to make all of these assumptions, and then I get this, uh, but, you know, we should, but we sh should be aware that all of these assumptions are there. And for example, the assumption that of complete markets, the assumption that uh, the financial risk is completely diversified away by, or can be completely diversified away by the, by the financial sector is just a crazy, well, it's just a crazy, it's, it just doesn't work. And we should be aware of it. Of it. How much time do I have? I didn't record. Three minutes. Another example I don't have a lot of time to talk about is the, the SGE models. Very quickly, these are um, very large models based on uh, the simplest uh, real business cycle models, introducing some of them price fictions, frictions, which have been thoroughly uh, studied by central banks. A lot of central banks now have their DSGE model. Uh, these DSGE models, uh, so these DSGE models uh, introduced price frictions, adjustment frictions. They introduced a lot of frictions, but they ignored financial frictions. Uh, most of these DSGE models just assume that firms can get financing whenever they need it. They uh, ignored collateral constraints. They ignored uh, capital requirements. They ignored, and these were kind of the problem. Now. Uh, to central banks who may have, may have uh, overinterpreted, to a central banker who may have overinterpreted the DSGE models, this uh, might have been a problem. The fact is that uh, these models can hardly be blamed for the crisis because uh, central banks had these as reference points. They hardly use them for prediction. Central bankers are, you know, smart people who know how to do their job, and they want to have these models um, as a reference point, 
And what have we learned? Have we learned nothing from all this exercise? I think we have learned that well. That these models should introduce financial frictions. There's a lot of research on financial frictions. Uh, just to mention a famous LSE paper, Kiyotaki Moore papers, um, introduce collateral constraint and so on. Uh, maybe things like that should be introduced in those models. Um, now, so what a good economist should know, it should know that the assumptions are very strong, often, we make very strong assumptions. They should learn that it's not so easy to generalize them, okay? It's easy to make fun of these assumptions. It's not so easy to do something better. And just as a, an example, very quickly, it's very easy, it's obviously <coughs> true that rational expectations is of, uh, false, no? People don't have, I certainly don't have rational expectations. It's a simplifying assumption uh, which has been used in many papers. It's a strong assumption. But you can work, you know, and you can try to improve on it. And for just to talk about the paper I've done, I'm here we've worked on a paper with Nicolini on hyperinflations, and we proved beyond the, sh the smallest shred of doubt that uh, hyperinflations can be very well explained with models of learning. And in the second paper, we proved beyond any um, doubt that you may ever have that to understand stock price volatility you need to study models of learning, okay? But this was a lot of work. Tom Sargent, by the way, is giving uh, a lecture in a few weeks here. And the title is Uncertainty and Ambiguity in American Fiscal Monetary Policies. So, so I really recommend that talk. But what I'm going to say is <coughs> it's uh, possible to improve on these assumptions. It's just difficult, you know, because once you go away from rational expectations, why did I say that uh, I hope that hopefully soon, well, there was a slide saying, hopefully soon we will teach model about expectations. Why hopefully soon? Well, because this work we're doing, mainstream economists are very suspicious. It's not easy to give these papers. Uh, but for good reasons, it's very easy to explain anything if our expectations are arbitrary. <coughs> What's difficult is to build models where agents don't have arbitrary expectations, where agents where you know, economic agents try as best as they can. They possibly don't get it right, but they try as best as they can. And uh, to model agents' expectations in a systematic way. This is what this new literature is trying to do, and, uh, and it's, just, uh, uh, it's, it's just not an it's much easier to assume rational expectations because then you don't have to think about how agents form their expectations. Anyway, so, yeah, I should question the assumptions. <laughs> Thank you very much. So our next speaker is Paul Omrod, and you don't have a PowerPoint, so he's just going to speak Well, thanks very much, Tim. Um, I want to start off by being uh, very positive about economics, that at, uh, at conferences I come into contact with a wide range of people from other disciplines, for example, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, physicists, mathematicians, control engineers, computer scientists. These are all conferences on social, economic, and cultural topics. So there's an awful lot going on outside economics itself, and the discipline in many ways is uh, rather insular. But economics has one great insight, 
which none of these other disciplines has, and without which many clever people uh, struggle to understand events. I'm talking about the role of incentives and the fact that agents respond to incentives. I think it's this insight above all else which distinguishes economics from other disciplines. And it's something which I think should be taught much more widely. Many more students in all disciplines should be exposed to this uh, very fundamental and powerful idea. But of course, to say this does not mean in any way that agents respond rationally. And economics has a lot to learn from other disciplines on this. But I'm going to come back to this point later. I think that a serious problem with the way much economics is taught is that theorems are presented as if, and that's one of our favorite phrases, as if, so I can't resist getting it in early, um, as if they had the same standing as, say, propositions in engineering textbooks. But this is very far from being the case. Um, as Jeff pointed out with one of his quotes, economics is much more a way of thinking about the world uh, than learning about undisputed scientifically settled theorems. Here's what Clive Granger, the Nobel Prize winner in 2003, has to say about it. I think it is true to say I'm not the first Nobel Prize winner in economics to have little formal training in economics. Well, I suppose that rules us out for a start, but uh, uh, I wonder if economics has less basic core material than is necessary for fields such as mathematics, physics, or chemistry, say. Economic theory does seem to maintain common concepts and features, but these may be quite simplistic and are not necessarily realistic. What I'd like to do, in fact, is to look a bit more closely at the work of those who've been awarded the Nobel Prize in the 21st century. Uh, most of this, this work, of course, is based on the output in the closing decades of the 20th century. But here, I suggest, is the basis for a more eclectic, wider-ranging syllabus for economic students now. We should be teaching them about the very best ideas in our discipline, the ones which will shape the future. I'm not offering a detailed prescription, but a sketch of a wider-ranging set of ideas to be explored by students. Some are already part of the standard curriculum, others are not. And I'm fundamentally in agreement with Hayek when he wrote, an economist who is only an economist cannot be a good economist. Let's go back to 2000 and the microeconometricians Heckman and McFadden. Now, quite rightly, their statistical techniques are taught. But what about the implications of their work? Here is Heckman in his prize lecture, and I quote, an important empirical regularity is the diversity and heterogeneity of agent behavior. Let me repeat this for emphasis. An important empirical regularity is the diversity and heterogeneity of agent behavior. So why are we still bothering to teach models in which the behavior of the whole economy is reduced to that of a single representative agent? Theoretical critiques of this are widespread. I might mention uh, Alan Kerman's brilliant article in the uh, 1989 Economic Journal. But here is decisive empirical evidence on the pervasiveness of heterogeneity amongst agents. Now, all theories, as everybody said, even quantum mechanics, are, of course, approximations to reality. But the question is, how always, how good are these approximations? And are we making the right simplifications? In terms of the representative agent, the evidence rejects the approximation decisively, and we should stop teaching it. So chemists stopped teaching their students about phlogiston over a century ago. Okay, in 2001, the prize winners, Akerlof, Stiglitz, and Spence. And of course, their work on asymmetric information and bounded rationality goes back almost 40 years, and quite properly uh, is an important part of current teaching. 
But Aklov and Stiglitz in particular have moved even further towards a, a rejection of rational uh, agent models in their work in the 21st century itself. Kahneman and Smith shared the prize in 2002 for their work in psychology and experimental economics. Kahneman's summary of the entire corpus of this empirical work is, and I quote, humans reason poorly and act intuitively. An empirical vindication of Herb Simon's view expressed in the 1950s of how agents actually behave. Now, we cannot ignore this evidence. We should be teaching much more about empirical evidence on agent behavior from the discipline of psychology uh, instead of insisting on a single approach which is everywhere applicable or whose assumptions can only be relaxed at a later stage. As Vernon Smith said in his prize lecture, within economics there is essentially only one model to be adapted to every application, optimization subject to constraints due to resource limitations, institutional rules and or the behavior of others as in Corno Nash equilibrium. I'm not saying the standard model should not be taught at all. There will be circumstances in which its assumptions are a sufficiently reasonable approximation to reality. But we need to recognize explicitly that it is just one possible candidate model of how agents behave. The empirical evidence suggests very clearly that it is a special and not the general case. Now it might be objected, indeed it is objected, uh, that the standard model enables analytical results to be obtained, which is not necessarily the case with the more realistic alternative models of agent behavior. Further, uh, how do we know uh, which one to use? This brings me back to the fundamental point that first, economics is a way of thinking about the world and not a set of theorems. Second, it must be empirically based. We must be teaching students to think about the appropriate assumptions on agent behavior in different contexts. Now, the personal computer frees us from the constraints of requiring analytical results in order to understand the implications of a hypothesis. 30 years ago, this was a reasonable, indeed almost the only way to proceed. But now, agent-based models can be readily programmed and the implications explored using simulation techniques. There's an explosion of interest in this methodology in other disciplines and economics risks getting left behind. We certainly should be teaching the methodologies of simulation and agent-based modeling to equip our students for the 21st century. Now let me move back to the Nobel Prize winners. I've already mentioned the 2000 to 2003 ones. 2004, Kidland and Prescott. Well, anyone can make a mistake. I just note in this context that when, when the American authorities saved the world in September 2008, they didn't do so by consulting rational expectations and dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. They acted in conditions of great uncertainty, relying to a large extent on the economic history of the 1930s and hoping that it had something to teach them. I've only got time to mention two more, though. Eleanor Ostrom's recent award uh, uh, emphasizes the crucial need to broaden the curriculum. Some knowledge of anthropology seems important for economists from her work. But here's Edmund Phelps, a 2006 winner. After some neoclassical years at the start of my career, I began building models that address modern phenomena. At Yale and at Rand, in part through my teachers William Fellner and Thomas Schelling, I gained some familiarity with the concepts of Knightian uncertainty, Keynesian probabilities, Hayek's private know-how, and Polanyi's personal knowledge. Now here's a whole syllabus in a single sentence. I mean, surely following the financial crisis, 
We need, for example, to be teaching about Frank Knight's uncertainty as well as how to solve the Black-Scholes model and even the modification of it which proliferates uh, in the financial community. Phelps mentions Thomas Schelling, a 2005 winner and a great polymath. One of his most brilliant papers was on segregation, how strong residential segregation on racial lines can emerge even though no single agent has a preference for this. In other papers at around the same time, he introduced the idea of binary choice with externalities. Agents are connected on a network. They have a zero-one choice, buy or not buy, move or not move. The taste and preference is not fixed, but can be altered directly by the behavior of other agents to which an agent is connected. Agents are heterogeneous in their willingness to be persuaded by others. They observe the, the behavior of the agents to which they are connected, and if the proportion making a different choice to them exceeds that personal threshold, they switch. This is at one point I think it is essential to teach students. Tastes and preferences are in general not fixed, but can be altered by the behavior of others. Not just indirectly by the price mechanism, though that's important, but directly. We've only to look at the modern world to see how pervasive this phenomenon is, especially uh, in cultural markets, popular cultural markets. As a result, for example, market demand and supply functions become non-additive. This seems to me uh, a fundamental insight uh, of the interaction of agents. In the past 10 to 15 years, there's been a massive explosion of work uh, in other disciplines. Physics, mathematical sociology, does exist, uh, computer science, anthropology, on social networks, both in theory and practice. And in particular, on how cascades of behavior either spread or are contained across such networks. Economists in general uh, have only the haziest idea, if they've heard of it at all, about such work. Yet it seems to me it's fundamental to understanding how the modern social and economic world works. It seems to me essential that economic students are familiarized with this work along with the techniques of simulation and agent-based modeling. There's certainly a place for the standard model, but as I say, as a special and not a general case. But above all, we need a much broader curriculum in which we're not afraid to borrow uh, from advances in other disciplines. More eclectic, less dogmatic, based more on empirics than on a priori assumptions. Thank you. And our final speaker will be John Sutton. In the middle of the 1960s, Fred Hoyle was one of the most admired physicists in the world. He was the man who just sat down with a piece of paper and a pencil and uh, used what he knew about nuclear reactions to calculate with astonishing predictive power the relative abundance of every atom or of every element in the universe. He came to LSE because they thought, wow, what an interesting person. We should have him give a talk. Well, Fred Hoyle didn't talk about physics. He thought, if I'm coming to the London School of Economics, I'll show them how to do economics. And he came along with a string of flip charts. And he said, I've been reading this book called National Income Expenditure, the blue book. And I've started plotting some data for you people. And you see, you could actually have statistical relationships here. 
He didn't realize that in front of him were some of the pioneers of mathematical economics and econometrics sitting there in the audience. It was very embarrassing. He had fallen into the trap that so many non-economists do of assuming that, well, the economists are a bit silly and they could do it much better. Keynes remarked that Dirac, who was a colleague of his, one of the greatest theoretical physicists of the 20th century, thought economics was very hard. He said Dirac could do all the mathematics needed in an afternoon, obviously. Dirac had understood why economics is hard. It's hard because it's messy, because it is a context in which it is very hard to get an adequate model which fully controls for all the myriad influences at work. Finding models at work is just hard. We've had a lot of progress in economics over the past 30 years, but it's not my job to tell you about it tonight. I'm sure that lots of you know about successes like the theory of options. You probably know how different development economics is from what it was 20 years ago. And you probably know that the design of econometric studies and the econometric testing of things has really taken an enormous leap forward in the past 20 years. But as I say, that's not what I'm going to tell you about tonight. What we're really dealing with in economics to come clean is islands of truth. There are very certain bits of it that really are well-founded. There's solid ground to stand on. But it's a minority of the stuff that it's good at. That's as good as that. A physicist once remarked that 95% of what appears in physics journals is wrong, but 95% of what appears in physics textbooks is right. They have a very powerful filter because of experimental evidence. Our filter is blunter. Our filter doesn't work as well. And our textbooks are much too sure of themselves. That's really what we're about. One problem that's not the problem here is the use of mathematics. When mathematics came in, in the 1950s, it swept away whole tangled literary debates. It was unthinkable, looking back 10 years on Keynes versus Robertson, on stocks and flows, to imagine that somebody had mixed up x and dx by dt. When Stockport met Samuelson, they were able in a single paper to clear up in a one beautiful theorem something that people had danced around without mathematics for more than a decade. The standard paradigm that we've built economics on for the past 50 years came with Samuelson in 1947. It proved to be enormously powerful. Rational agents would face a true, albeit stochastic, model of their world. The real difficulty we face is actually not with the rationality of agents. We've had behavioral economics for the past decade. The really hard challenges are that either we economists don't know what the true model is that would be a good first-order approximation, or the agents themselves within their own micro-markets don't know it. I think the first problem we have learned how to deal with over the past 20 years. The second problem is deeper, and it still remains a very serious challenge. It is because of the success of the standard paradigm that we have a blind spot. We are far too inclined as a profession to be wedded to a certain kind of model, 
We want a certain type of model where the agents know their environment and do the best they can within it. And this makes us very blind to certain kinds of important contribution. If you're a finance person, why does Mandelbrot not get better press? It's because it's an empirical regularity. It explains the fat tales, but there isn't a maximizing agent. And we worry about arbitrage possibilities where they may not be empirically important. Nighty and uncertainty is the real thing that we need to grapple with. And even if there's only a small amount of true nighty and uncertainty, it really builds in a major challenge to some of our models. There are various ways in which the literature tries to do this. But this blind spot, and this is what I want to emphasize, means that we pay the price of missing stuff. One of the most interesting empirical papers in my field of industrial organization was published not in the American Economic Review, but in Nature, because it merely recorded a new empirical regularity. To physicists, that's major news publishable in Nature. To economists, poof, no big deal. Give us a model. And that really is a serious bias. People working on Friedman's theory of the permanent income hypothesis for the past 30 years have been in love with a model which is a beautiful and empirically successful model, but it has serious limitations. It displaced Duesenberry's ratchet effect, which lacked a rational agent behind it. And yet nowadays, people are putting Duesenberry back, now that behavioral economics is the order of the day, in order to try to get better empirical predictions. We tend to like things that come with a model. We ought to be more in love with things like ugly facts. Kindleberger's greatest hour was when he pointed out that the deficiency of rational expectations models of bubbles in financial markets by simply remarking that no major crash had ever happened within 20 years of its predecessor. It should be Markovian, but it isn't. As he said, it takes 20 years for a new generation of suckers to be born. That's an ugly fact. Ugly facts are our biggest ally, but we don't pay enough attention to them. The paradigm really needs to be reviewed. It's not about rational expectations, no, uh, rational agents knowing the world that they're living in. It's really just about an insistence. And this is the strength of economics since Samuelson 1947 our insistence on the value of formulating claims tightly with a focus on getting rejectable implications. And here at LSE, under the shadow of Karl Popper, I feel safe in insisting on this. So what is to be done, as Lenin asked? Well, I have a modest proposal. I'm going to propose merely that we shut in our teaching, be even more ambitious than we are, in exposing at every step the empirical standing of both assumptions and predictions. I'm quite aware of the philosophical Friedmanite objection to attacking assumptions, but we should do it anyway. Of course, there are three objections. My colleagues will tell me we do this already, but I just want you to do more of it. They'll tell me it's impractical and inefficient to do more of it, but I want them to do it anyway. And they'll tell me the students will hate it. But I think that's very unfair to students. I think the students will like it. And yet, how radical is this little suggestion of mine? Some teachers do teach more or less like this. But look at our textbooks. 
Do they meet the physicist criterion of 95% of the stuff in this is right? What I'm really asking for here is something modest yet radical. I think that if we were to teach economics with that insistence all the time, the payoff would be that we might learn a lot. It would move us towards realizing that every subject that is intellectually successful has gone through a crisis. The physicists had it in the 17th century. They got rid of astrology and did astronomy. The chemists had it. They had it when they threw away alchemy and moved towards experimental evidence. Medicine had it in the 1890s when they finally realized most of their cures were useless, the body is largely self-healing, and that they had better start looking for some evidence. We need that kind of crisis in economics. To wipe away all the stuff that doesn't stand on firm ground, to admit the little that we know. The right true path lies in accepting that all theoretical developments should be valued in terms of their empirical success. Enemy of progress is the aesthetic criterion to which we're secretly wedded. We really do have a predilection for models that are intellectually very satisfying, but a bit ropey at the edges when it comes to prediction. But what's this debate really about? What's been happening in this financial crisis? Was it foolhardy bankers, inefficient regulators, or inept economists that we should blame today? No, it was the myth of the great moderation. We went through a 20-year upswing in the world economy, and we tended to forget that certain things like the next recession are inherently unpredictable, rather like bubbles in irrational expectation models. What we're bad at getting is theories that work in this kind of area. Why didn't we see it coming? Well, we can tell the story exposed. There were all those building societies making those bad loans. There were all those guys in financial <coughs> markets that thought they had these instruments that would solve risk. But of course, we should have known better. Why isn't that built into the macro models? Well, the reason is fundamental. It is that it's bits and pieces. You can't get a nice, clean macro model that tidily generalizes the fact that in a nice safe period where the economy is booming along nicely with no unemployment for 20 years, that people won't think up a few fiddles, a few dubious practices, a few things here and there. And next time around, it'll be a different few things they'll think up. But what we'll still be left with is the fact that instability is just a feature of market economies. And they aren't naturally stable objects. And they do bounce around. And the next recession will be equally unpredictable in its timing, and we'll be here again. Well, thank you very much to all of our speakers. They've given us, I think, plenty of material to get our teeth into in terms of discussion. So I'd like at this point to throw it open to the floor. Um, the ground rules are as follows. I'd like you to be all... Uh, to the point, uh, and to tell us who you are before you make your comments or, or ask your questions. I'm not going to go straight back to the panel. I want to collect a certain amount of uh, audience uh, material first, and then we'll at some point return to the panel. So if you could raise your hand. There are roving mics. Please don't start uh, asking your questions until 
the mic gets to you, I'm going to start there, and then I'm going to go over here. I'm going to kind of go alternate between the right and the left. So let's, first person who caught my eye was actually over there. Uh, and uh, so, so say, begin, please tell us who you are. Hi, my, my name is Derek. I'm a master's student in economic history. I was wondering what you all, and this is open to any of the economists up here, think of the role of the philosophy of social science and how that should figure into the teaching of economics. Specifically, if economists are supposed to be dealing with causal explanations, it seems like the philosophy of science would be a good starting ground to see what does it mean to give a scientific explanation and then to be engaged in that debate because anyone that's familiar with that field knows that there isn't complete agreement among philosophers. Uh, and I added several, ex um, I give several examples of maybe books that, you know, beginning economists should read. Uh, for one, Karl Popper, he argues that, well, a good theory is one that can be falsified. Should we have that in economics or should we not? Should it be tossed out? Uh, a really good one would be Occam's Razor. Simple explanations, all else equal, are preferred to complex ones. And then maybe reading Thomas Kuhn to see how science has evolved over the years. So thank you. Okay, so could you pass that back and I'll go to the gentleman down the front here. Yes, um, I'd like to say um, a few words regarding the uh, problems raised and uh, their possible solutions with a view to perhaps uh, initiate a debate, especially following the problems that were raised by uh, Professor Hodgson. Now, <clears throat> we all agree that the world is very complicated. And what we do is we divide it into domains. Can you hear me, by the way? Yes, can. Right, right. We divide it into domains and we use means historically developed over the millennium, like natural language, painting, sculpting, mathematics, to create models, which is an everyday experience, that eventually might lead to disciplines. Now, I'll give you an, uh, an example. We are surrounded by material bodies, and uh, we extract, which is the domain, the material bodies is the domain, and we extract uh, quantifiable properties, and using mathematics, we create models, uh, which is the means leading to models, and the discipline of mechanics has been born. Now, economics has a problem, because as we have I'm not an economist, don't know anything about economics, but <laughs> well, you say that uh, the economic models are all mathematical models. Now, which lead to the discipline of economics. So we have got the discipline of economics, uh, mathematical models, but the means are not clear. Not as, certainly not as clear as in uh, mechanics and the rest of the physics. They are messy, as um, I think it was Professor Sutton who said. And, <clears throat> and the, the domain is human activity. It's people which is full of, the, or the predominant importance is non-quantifiable uh, qualitative properties. So we have got this contradiction. Well, mathematics, on one hand, which deals with quantifiable properties, and human activities, economics, which deals with uh, qualified, uh, quali quali um, qualified properties, not quantified, but qualified properties. And so the question is, how can we resolve this problem? And this is where I would like to initiate 
the debate, if anybody takes any notice that it. And I reckon that um, it is possible. I want to maximize participation. It is, uh, uh, that is, I'm propounding the solution, if you will. Somebody has already mentioned uh, object-oriented uh, properties and, um, and uh, work that going on other disciplines. Now, what I'm saying is that it is possible to create a theory of related objects. Human activities are related objects. Mathematics is out, so what is in, what is the symbolism that can carry this? And that is processed natural language. And th this has been attempted, uh, and I'm wondering if a debate could possibly be initiated to apply this to economics. And okay, thank, thank you very much. So let's go kind of up the way there. I had, uh, actually, let's come, come here, to, and then we'll kind of move backwards. And if you could just get the mic, you'll be, you'll be next in line. Okay, uh, I'm uh, Andy Ross from Government Economic Service, and I'll try to be more concise. Um, one thing, if I take this question a bit more literally, what should we teach our students? I, I'm very much aware that the approach of academics um, is different from how we do things in government. The economists there, we, to be honest, we don't read many economics journals. Perhaps we should, but they take a long time to read, and they don't always inform us on the things we need to know. Um, but if I limited my intake to the likes of Lord Stern, who was the, uh, the head of the GES, um, we'd have about ten economists. And it's that old saying about you know, mathematics being a, a, a good um, servant but a poor master, uh, which is an old saying. Um, but I'm wondering if you see a distinction in perhaps first degrees and masters as well in the sort of aspect you're talking about, which is training to advance a slow accumula accumulation of scientific knowledge perhaps and putting people in to be practitioners and whether that affects how you see uh, first degrees so we quite favour, you know, PPE is very popular uh, in the civil service, not just because it's association with certain uh, backgrounds, um, but that broadness is emphasised in the way which a preparation to be an academic researcher uh, is emphasised elsewhere. And of the two, we probably find the broader PPE approach more useful uh, because in government economics it's very much about dilemmas, not lemmas. So, thank, you. thank you very much. So we'll go, we'll go here and then we'll kind of, as I say, we'll... Uh, I think it should be on. Linda Korsha, yeah, is it on? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, first point I want to make is that I'm looking at five men, and um, feminist economics did not come up at all. Um, that whole area, I mean, I, I felt that things didn't move very far outside of a pretty small box here, and maybe that's <coughs> quite a fundamental problem. Um, Paul, is it... Um, you said that tastes and preferences are not fixed and can be altered by others. You made that point quite strongly. But I, um, I ask, in that sense, how much is it the case that standard neoliberal economics is actually creating the reality um, that we live with? And that's not an abstract point because it certainly drives the... Uh, the trade liberalisation model, which is the global trajectory that we're on. So what I'm saying is that that's, um, that, uh, that that is creating the reality in itself. And lastly, um, in talking about models, 
isn't it a fundamental problem that LSE is still being run by someone with such a core responsibility for our national economic disaster? And Howard Davis is, in fact, Mr. Light Touch Financial Services Authority, and um, he's still in this privileged position. So isn't there a model problem in that, and shouldn't we sort that one out first? <laughs> well, we will we'll be sure to convey that view to Howard. Uh, okay, could I, I'll go up here now. Um, gentleman there, and then uh, we'll go one more, and then I'll come back to the panel. So... You could go up to the two people there. Uh, hi, uh, Sean Buchan. Um, I'm University of Bath, but I'm on a placement here in the Government Economic Service. Um, I just wanted, uh, from listening to all the speakers, it doesn't seem like uh, there's any sort of clear agreement as to what the remit of economics actually is. If you're going to talk about what we're trying to teach economic students, sometimes it's not actually clear what economics is actually trying to do. Depending on the economist you talk to, um, sometimes economics is just trying to study human behavior. Sometimes economics is trying to conquer the world and conquer physics and every other science that is available to conquer, um, which I'm not sure it can actually do. But uh, just wondering what economics is actually trying to achieve and to echo actually uh, Andy Ross's points. It, depend, it, it depends on if you're coming from a, uh, coming from a point of academia or if you're coming from a point of practicality because from a practical standpoint, maybe what an economist is trying to do is different to what an economist is trying to do from an academic standpoint. So I was just wondering what the speakers thought uh, economics is actually trying to do at the end of the day. Okay, thank you. So one more, I'll take one more um, question and we'll, we'll have a, a round of responses from the panel. Okay. Um, I was uh, really, really pleased um, about all the talk of agent-based modeling. Um, which was completely unexpected for me. I'm, um, my name is Gwenny Vernell. I'm, um, I'm in policy, but I have a background in complexity and agent-based um, programming. And <clears throat> I thought that was brilliant. Um, someone else um, mentioned um, the philosophy of social science kind of thing. And one of the things that that, that reminded me of is that when a lot of you guys also talked about how um, uh, having a strong faith in empirical um, evidence, you know, proofs and stuff, um, testing your models. Um, but complexity theory talks a lot about how can you kind of prove models or how can you look at empirical evidence if something is a complex system. And the interesting thing about economics, which ties into that um, social science philosophy, is that economics is not only a complex system, it's a complex system made up of complex systems because humans are a complex system themselves, um, which, you know, which is why it's so confusing because people aren't totally rational, um, and, but there is definitely kind of rationality and incentives and everything there, but it's because of this interaction between different humans and the humans' own complexity within themselves uh, makes it very complicated. So I guess I just, um, I wanted to, to, you know, give my support to this move towards agent-based modeling, teaching agent-based modeling and complexity, but um, with the caveat that uh, economists have to understand what it means to be dealing with a complex system. And, you know, Hayek talks a lot about that, and there's some other um, kind of people that are a little bit more philosophical within the economics tradition that have, you know, talked about this, but it's not something that most economists understand, this difference between, you know, why could the physicist not get up there and, you know, and, and just teach economists everything? Well, because economics isn't physics, because you are dealing with a complex system and a complex system of complex systems. Okay, thank you. So what I'm going to do is go back to the panel. Um, I, I, of course, I want you to answer all the questions, but try and be a bit select so we can move on. I want to do a fresh, an, another round at the moment. So, Jeff, why don't you start with any responses you would like yeah, to make to those questions? Lots of things to respond to, but I'll just pick two. Uh, first of all, the, 
the gentleman who asked about what's economics about. Now, there's lots of great people that have been in the LSC, but one person I want to criticise now, if I want to, is Robbins. Right? <coughs> he changed the definition of the subject from the Marshallian definition. The Marshallian definition of the subject was the study of business life or the study of the economy. Right? And I think that's what the economy should be about, a real object, a scientific object, is the study of the economy. And Robbins did enormous damage by changing the definition of the science of choice. And there's a lot of good people at the OSC, but I think that was a bad move. Uh, um, so that's my answer. Let's go back to the Marshallian definition of the subject, which was not only Marshall, but Cannon and others, also known as an LSC person. Um, the gentleman in the blue shirt asked about the philosophy of science. Why is it important to do philosophy? And I agree with the, your, your two classics you mentioned. Everyone should have some knowledge of Popper and some knowledge of Kuhn and, and many others, and so on. But if you've not done philosophy, don't, don't go to philosophy believing you're going to get a recipe. It doesn't give you a recipe for truth. What it does do is help you be critical about meaning and about, about truth statements, claims about truth, how you examine them, how you scrutinise them, what they mean, how they knit in with others. Another work in philosophy of science talks about science as a social process, how you organise science so that it actually maximises the chances of engaging meaningfully with its real object, which is in this case the economy. So that's a reason for studying philosophy. Uh, and, and it's, I, I would say that everyone at, at, at graduate and, and undergraduate level should have address the philosophy of their own discipline uh, to some degree as a compulsory subject. Um, of course, some are going to go on to be specialists, but I think some knowledge of that is essential. Otherwise, you get sucked into your own techniques and you don't really think about what they mean and what their truth value could be. It's extremely important that we engage with that. Not for recipes, but for being self-critical and being careful about concepts and meanings and words. Okay, Paul, I'll go that direction. So, Paul, what do you uh, Yeah, well, first of all, can I, I, mean, I, was, I mean, Howard was in my former school, so the only thing I'll heard said against him is a Manchester City supporter, but, you know, we'll leave that to one side. <laughs> but you, you raise uh, an important point about um, the role of dominant ideology, which is a, like a special case of more how do norms, how do social norms emerge? which is very important. I mean, all strong block anthropology shows this is important uh, in the setting. Um, and economics seems to me has very little to say about this. It's a, it's a fundamental problem for understanding how the world behaves. A different agents operating on different agents operating on different social norms give different responses. I mean, just by way of example, I'm going to a conference I saw Bond next week precisely on this issue, on the emergence of norms. But I'm the only economist there, and I think that's sad. And I think we should be engaging much more widely uh, with um, other disciplines. Um, on the difference between academics and practical economists, well, of course, in, in the content, uh, but I mean, in, in the actual problems you're addressing, the academics are trying to push the frontiers of knowledge forward. Uh, but I think in some ways this is a, this, this is a false dilemma. Um, you, know, you should be using the very best insights the way you're thinking about uh, problems. And I do think a lot of um, you know, what goes on in the government economics, I mean, my experience is, to be frank, I mean, uh, the, the, the people who are doing practical economics out there are operating at a very, very low level. I mean, if you ask them to retake their MSc exams, they'd probably all fail, but you know, that's a different part altogether. Um, just quickly on, 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 on philosophy, I think, and agent-based models, I think. Um, of course, I, I didn't do PPI, I just did straight economics at Cambridge, so I've got a bit of a downer on philosophy, but I've got more attracted to it over the years because I mean, there are important questions, uh, particularly in complex systems, about, you know, not just, I mean, there's verification of, of models in these things can be difficult, but uh, the whole question of how do we validate models? Um, they're important, there are whole conferences on uh, philosophical issues involved, 
in um, you know, validation of complex systems modeling and agent-based modeling. So these are important things for social science as a whole, of which economics seems to me to be part rather than exclusive and separate discipline. Okay, Albert, would you like to respond? Um, <clears throat> yeah, briefly. The, um, so the question about what economics is called popular or simple theories. Um, um, I see economics as, uh, I mean, like the way I like, I try to do economics is, uh, as I said in the first line, so I, I like to do, look at important issues about what we think is economics, uh, so markets, uh, etc., and business, uh, so on. And uh, I try to understand them with uh, models because that helps me perhaps design or perhaps think about what is a policy intervention that can improve in the case in case things don't go well. And the way I go about it, the way I like to think I go about it is build a model, test it. If it fails, then I guess that's popper, you know? That would be, that would fall into Karl Popper. Uh, simple theories or not, I mean, everything else equal, you prefer a simple theory because it's easier. Uh, I mean, uh, people make fun of econ the, the, the usual joke about, about an economist is, well, why are you looking, you, lo you lost your key, why are you looking at it under the street light and it's just because there is the light here, no? But, I mean, that's what I do. If I, if I lose the key and I have no sense, no idea whatsoever where the key is, I first go under the street light. Uh, that's, the, that's the first thing to do, but uh, of course, if, I, if the simple theory doesn't work, then I should just do something else. No? And that's, I think, what we do all the time. A lot of the comments I hear about what, what economics does are not really fair. I mean, there are hundreds of papers looking at... Uh, heterogeneous agents, looking at uh, institutional detail, looking at economic history, looking at contracts, looking at, it's just that in micro, in micro core courses, we start with the simple stuff. But if you look at journals, just take the last uh, five issues of any top journal, you'll see a lot of uh, things that are uh, very different from what is supposed to be the, the only thing we do. Um, why we use mathematics, as John said, well, it's just because it's too easy to say anything. Uh, it's just, I don't know, uh, I have a hard time uh, without mathematics, understanding people. And uh, I must be me, but it's, uh, it seems to me too easy to say anything you want uh, with, without mathematics. It's not true. You, you, I mean, it's not true. You can verbally lay out models. You can, you can read some of the very old economists. They had very clear models in their heads, and sometimes there was a very clear idea that was expressed verbally. I can't do it. I'm, so. um, okay, can we... Well, Nobody, no, as far as I know, has argued we shouldn't be using it. One last comment. Can we just be quick, because we... Yeah, right quick comment. The problem I, ha I have with, with the agent-based literature is that I see these uh, papers uh, that uh, just write down arbitrary rules for how agents behave. And then, uh, going back to the gentleman's question, those cannot be rejected. I can always find a rule that, I mean, they, they, I can always find a rule that says why the, why the crisis 
happened in uh, 2009 is just because the rules said it had to happen then. It's a... Uh, Okay, we should really we should really move along. That's the okay. feeling from okay. the literature. John. Yeah, I'm really struck by the fact that there's just one thing that all four speakers agree on, and that's that uh, economists should be broadly educated and know lots of things. And I'm coming back to that question about philosophy of science. For me, it's certainly one of the things that I think it's really important for economists to do. No, but then I think they should know lots of things. I I did a stint as uh, head of department a few years ago. My biggest failure was uh, in my attempt to get our undergraduates to take a wider menu of courses. I had no success at all. I said, you've got to do economic history, you've got to do philosophy of science. And um, the economic history department solves the problem where I had failed completely. Um, they simply put their most brilliant teacher onto the first year undergraduate course and suddenly all our students were doing it. That's how you solve problems. Okay, none of you took up the gender question. Do you think there's a gender <laughs> So I want one of you to raise your hand, otherwise I shall, in true LSE fashion, point oh. to one of you. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I mean, it means he's a, a, a fair point, but I mean, this is, this is, I did try and touch on it indirectly about the emergence of norms, and one of the, you know, I mean, the filter goes on earlier, doesn't it? I mean, the fact is, um, in economics as it stands now, well, I mean, I mean, Eleanor Olstrom is the first woman to be awarded the Nobel Prize, and you know, and there's there's many, many, but that just reflects the filters that have gone on earlier in the discipline. You know, because of, I think because of its mathematical orientation, and we you know we can see it, we can see it happening at the school level. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> okay, I can't say it was unwise to go there. Okay, uh, we have we have very little time, so I'm going to ask for incredibly brief uh, further questions. I'm going to go up on this side here. And then I'll go to you. And we probably, if you're brief, we can get more uh, questions in. So please be brief. So if you go up uh, on the left there, um, one more, two, two more, two more there. Okay. Um, Mariana Mazzucato from the OU. Um, I think it's a myth to say that the critique of um, mainstream economics is that it's you know too simple, too abstract. That's not the problem. The problem is what you're abstracting from. So if you're abstracting from the essence of the system, for example, technological change as being the core way that firms compete, that's a problem. Or, you know, Keynes said that the problem was that um, economists were abstracting from unemployment as one of the core, um, if you want, empirical regulation, um, sorry, re regularities that keep appearing in cycles. Um, and I think that's also related to the second myth about mathematics, that the problem is not too much mathematics, it's which mathematics. So using, if you want, mathematics borrowed, I think, incorrectly from um, Newtonian physics. That's the problem, okay? That maybe we should be using other types of mathematics that, for example, give heterogeneity its real importance. So heterogeneity is a permanent um, aspect of the system. And lastly, I think it's important to emphasize courage because uh, you can have the same empirical regularity, for example, the um, skewed size distribution of firms, explained by two very different theories, a purely stochastic theory and a deterministic theory. Now, what does that mean, that they both can produce a skewed size distribution of firms? You actually have to then choose which theory is right, and that might have to do with which one you think actually has the right assumptions. And sometimes it's just about courage to say these assumptions, I just think, are wrong, even though it can, can in fact, produce the empirical regularity. Okay, thank you. We'll go up, uh, in, you want to go up there? In, uh, uh, woman in, in blue there, uh, on the right, who's been raising her hand. Uh, stop there. Uh, no, sorry, no, I was going over, over there. Okay. 
And we'll come to you uh, in a moment. Okay, um, going up, you'll, you'll be next in line. Um, uh, my name is Eunice. I'm an MSc Law and Accounting student, and I just wanted to um, ask you about how all of you agree that economists aren't educated broadly enough, and therefore that somehow contributes to them not being able to articulate to the layperson. And um, I was wondering how, how you're actually going to deliver that sort of broader education in the UK university system where you specialize right away. How are you actually going to do that, or do you need a more radical change in the education system? Okay, thank you. Um, up the back, so just in, no, just uh, come down one and to the to the other side, other side there. Okay, then you're next. Okay. Hi. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Robert Searle, and um, I, I do find that uh, that economics is incredibly dull. I mean, there's a total lack of no, seriously, there's a lack of original thinking. It's all very well laughing, ha ha ha. But there needs to be a new paradigm, a new way of understanding. And what I'm talking about, uh, basically, is the idea of trans-financial economics. And it is a, 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 it is a ferial uh, system which is in the process of development. And uh, central to it is the idea that money itself, of course, is electronic information, which can be measured, and so on and so forth. Now... It has a huge implication. I can't talk about it, obviously, today. I mean, it's impossible. But if you look on, on the Internet for a peer-to-peer -peer foundation, peer-to-peer -peer foundation, and uh, read, and, and then put in the words trans-financial economics, you understand. And another thing, before, before I stop, is that uh, many people don't seem to appreciate, especially economists, the importance of the the seeming reality that banks can create money electronically out of thin air. Well, so what? I mean, you know, credit creation. But it has very important implications. We've never really been taken very seriously. And I'm sure you, obviously, you, you know about credit creation, sometimes factual, factual reserve banking, so on. But this is a very important subject because money itself is the basis on which you can, uh, on which um, reduce, in which um, resources can be, um, how shall we say, be uh, uh, controlled um, uh, in a proper fashion. It's the understanding of money which is the basis of the problem. It's not the only, it's like the capstone of the problem. Obviously the resources, but it's money which is the means by which you can um, you know, you, um, use resources in a proper fashion or abuse them, obviously. And money is a basic factor and it's an artificial thing as well. It's not something which is natural, like resources. And of course there are artificial resources as well. But uh, uh, that's basically it. But if you look under, uh, on, for peer-to-peer -peer foundation, trans-financial economics, it's, it's, a, it's a process of development. But it is very, very important. But it does require vision and imagination, which I'm afraid I can't find amongst a lot of economists. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is a shame. Go, let's go up, up there. Um, okay. Raul Espejo, I'm basically in the systems field. I've been interested to hear all of these. I'm thinking very much about what kind of teaching is the one that economics or the departments of economics are trying to develop. It is clear to me that economics is embedded in a political system and that many of these policies that emerge of the political system are policies that fragment, are producing the fragmentation of 
the social activities of the institutions that we have and overall are making far more difficult the regulation of all these institutions and human activities. So isn't it possible to think in the teaching of economics that we live in a highly interconnected world that requires very strongly to have policies that avoid fragmentation, that support self-organization and self-regulation, and at the same time that increase the chances of success in regulation. That's something that I saw missing very much in all the presentations. Okay, thank you very much. What I'm going to do, unfortunately, um, we're really coming to a close now. I'm going to give the panelists a chance, if they wish, not compulsory, to make a final statement on anything they've heard or uh, something that's occurred to them whilst they're listening, <coughs> and then I'll close the proceedings. So, again, I'll start with you, Jeff, and I'll move over there. Okay. Again, a very rich uh, discussion. I'll just focus on two points. I think there's a lot of agreement on the panel, and there's an element of disagreement, if I may highlight that for a minute. The element, one element of disagreement is the idea that there's a single best model which is somehow less arbitrary than other models. I think we've labored too long under that illusion that there's just one focal point for modeling, and everything else is an arbitrary deviation from that. Rational expectations is also arbitrary. It's on the top right-hand side of my box, if you remember my slides. That any point in that box is arbitrary. Uh, the question is how do you actually situate a model so it's in some sense uh, uh, more truthful, more valuable, more useful, whatever the criterion is. Now, this, when this school was founded in 1895, the, the web, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, played a crucial role in founding the, the school, the LSE. Uh, they wanted the economics department to be dominated by the thoughts or views of the German historical school which lasted from the 1840s up to the Nazi period. One of the insights of the German historical school, don't believe those people said and said they have nothing to say. It's not true. One of the insights they said had is that you cannot apply the same theory to every historical circumstance. Different economies function to some degree in different ways. The quest for universality is mistaken and flawed, even though there are some common principles and general frameworks. To understand the nitty-gritty, you have to get down precisely the institutional and historically determined detail. We're slowly relearning that truth, even though everyone's forgotten about the German historical school. That's one reason why feminist economics is important, because amongst the many other insights it makes, is you can't apply exactly the same principles to a household or what goes on within the economic activity within a household as you do to a stock market. They're different institutions, and to some significant degree, they function in different ways. And to understand those differences, you have to look at the institutions, their institutional history, you have to learn from sociology and other disciplines which contributed to understanding those particular phenomena. That is why the rich tableau is important, why the rich diversity is important. And the idea that one single model is best and somehow less arbitrary, and somehow therefore we have to focus on it, I think is false. Okay, let's go across and emphasize we're, we're almost out of time. Yeah, now, sure. So. Um, just quickly on uh, different forms of mass, I agree absolutely with that. I think people should be taught graph theory, uh, network theory, about how there's a massive explosion in graph theory in the last 10 years um, about agent, how, how agents are connected, how different forms of networks have different implications for cascades and containing, containing cascades of behavior. 
very relevant for understanding the financial crisis. Just to reflect for a minute on the textbooks, because that's the obstacle. Because we're not talking here about what's taught at LSE, we're talking about what's taught about the generality of economic students. And there's absolutely no doubt, if you take any best-selling textbook now and compare it uh, to the ones which are now allowed, say Lipsy, they are dumbed down to a terrifying degree. Lipsy has, Lipsy, I mean, a, a bestseller with Samuelson, um, lots of words, hardly, not very much maths, lots of diagrams, but lots of insights into how the economy works. And they, you comp compare them, uh, tremendous difference. But the problem is, how do you actually, it's a classic problem of locking the existing textbooks dominate the market. Um, economics can tell us they've got some insights as to why this happens. And how do we actually break that down? Because the chances are that anybody who writes an alternative textbook, that will fail. Um, and it's almost a random process as one which will break that lock uh, and cascade um, outwards. So it's a very difficult problem breaking down the locking on textbooks. Not Tom of the LSE, the generality of people who taught economics are taught a dumbed down version of what was taught even 30 years ago. Okay, Albert, do you have anything else to, to add? I just uh, <clears throat> want to insist that uh, what the profession is doing, or the research in economics is doing, is much wider than, much, much, much more wider and much broader and much more interesting than many of the comments we heard would make to, would make, would, would make them to believe. Just to take one example, uh, here at the LSE we have Chris Pisaridis who has been um, working on the wonderful model of unemployment and it's perfectly, the Mortensen and Pisaridis model is perfectly standard and used in many, uh, in many uh, papers. So just, uh, there's a lot of interesting thing that's being done and can be done more, but it's not like we're doing everything wrong, I think. Okay, John. Apart from endorsing what uh, Paul says about the uh, codification of knowledge and the oversimplification in textbooks, uh, but I'd like to endorse that, but it would require a separate debate in itself. I think it's an insidious process. Well, uh, just remains for me to very briefly close proceedings. I don't plan to give you any uh, uh, of my own views. I've learned a lot from uh, the panel, and I'm sure we'll all be thinking about what they've had to say. Uh, I guess I, the one, one comment I would make is that, to some extent, this debate has poignancy from what you would say is an enormous success in the economics profession, I think typified by the kind of work that, say, goes on in the Government Economics Service, in the sense that we really do now get out there and influence and change the world. Uh, I'd like, some of us like to think for better, and uh, not everybody would agree, but ultimately that's why we have to ask these type of questions and think about it, because economics has become an enormous force in uh, modern societies in terms of influencing policy and business. Um, anyway, I'd like to thank the panelists and to thank you for coming and making this uh, a very enjoyable and st stimulating experience. Thank you. Thank you.